Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Author Orhan Pamuk once said, Dogs do speak but only to those who know how to listen. Now, I imagine most of you are listening to this podcast are sports fans. For those of you who are looking at the YouTube channel for this podcast, you can see behind me that I'm a big NHL fan, uh, specifically of the St. Louis Blues. We're season ticket holders. And as with any of the major sports, the advertising dollars are big, the salaries are big, the economics are big. But what about the economics and financing for sports that don't have the national and international draw that are more regional in their appeal? Today's guest is going to speak on that very subject. He has been a family friend for a number of years. We've been corporate sponsors to him for a couple of his races now. His name is Dallas Seavey. He's an Iditarod racer, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's a dog sled race that covers a thousand miles of the backcountry of Alaska that's run every March. And it just actually celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. Now, Dallas is the youngest ever to run this race, which he accomplished at age 18. He's the youngest to actually ever win the race, which he accomplished at age 25. And not even having reached the ripe old age of 40 yet, he's only the second Iditarod racer ever to win the race five times. He's also won the Yukon Quest, which is a thousand mile race across Canada and Alaska. And he recently competed overseas in the European equivalent of the Iditarod, which is the Finnmark Schlopa. So it's my pleasure today to welcome five-time Iditarod champion, Dallas Seavey, coming to us from Talkeetna, Alaska. Dallas, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Awesome. Thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to see you again, brother. So I guess the place to start, you were the youngest Iditarod racer ever at age 18, and I really thought it'd be kind of interesting to start with. How do you build a team as an 18-year-old? And maybe give us some insights into how that kind of grew and it evolved as time has gone on. <laughs> well, evolved is probably the best word to use for it. Things have changed a lot. And I think we have evolved through the sport. And I think that's what I probably enjoy most about the sport is it pushes you to evolve, to grow, to change, to improve. In short, continue to be alive <laughs> and rather than become stagnant. So going back to the very beginning, I grew up in a mushing family. You know, mushing is what we did, for me at least, from day one. My grandfather started mushing dogs when my dad was four. So my dad started when he was a tiny little kid. So I grew up in the sport. My brothers and I were all homeschooled, not because there weren't schools in the area or anything, but we were the workforce, right? It was a family business, and it was a lot like farming or ranching, where the kids grew up doing what they could at an age-appropriate level. And up on the ranks. Actually, I should probably clarify, I wasn't really homeschooled. I was more just home. I'm sure that'll become abundantly clear as we proceed in this conversation. <laughs> the excuse the dog ate my homework always worked, but I grew up surrounded by 60 or 100 dogs. I did a rod when I was 18, but at that point, I was still racing under my family's kind of kennel banner, if you will. I hadn't yet struck out on my own, started my own team, and I did become the youngest person ever to complete the Iditarod. But in fairness, that was largely due to a very lucky birthday. I turned 18 the day before the Iditarod started. You have to be 18 to compete. So both my older brothers also raced it at 18, but they were 18 in some number of months, and I was 18 in one day. So a little bit of a lucky birthday, but hey, we'll take every edge we can. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm assuming then 
you got to pick the dogs from your team, from your yes family? Yes no. That's a good question. A lot of times how people are going to do their first Iditarod, or hear this term around the sport that they're running a puppy team, or they're running for another kennel. Generally, what that means is that kennel is doing like an internship with a musher that's trying to come up the ranks, or in this case, I was born into the family, and they're going to be working with a developmental team. In my case, it was all young dogs. They were all two years old with the exception of one adult lead dog. And the whole point of that training season and doing the race was to expose those dogs to a positive learning experience. Think of it as college sports or a feeder team for a major sports team. That's what we're doing. So when I raced my first Iditarod, I wasn't racing with the idea of winning or even being competitive. The goal, the objective of that race was to build better sled dogs have a positive learning experience for those dogs so that they would come back the next year as bigger, better athletes. Now they're three-year-olds, now they're candidates, in that case, for my dad's racing team. And they would be rookies on the pro team the following year with more experience. So yeah, I was handed a group of two-year-olds and said, make a team out of it. (laughs) So you're basically doing the family a favor. You're training these dogs. Yeah, it also kind of served as as high school graduation for a homeschool kid in in Alaska. (laughs) That was kind of the, once you got done with your rookie Iditarod, you were free to leave sort of a thing. It was very much an educational experience for me. I think there's a lot of responsibility at 18 when you have 20-something dogs that are your sole responsibility. We're going to accrue about 2,000 miles of training on each of those dogs throughout the year. And it's a lot to keep track of, everything from traveling across the state to train dogs. And I have now made a life of this. And so I think it was educational experience at that time. But for both of my brothers who do not work in, well, I shouldn't say not in the mushing industry, but certainly not in the racing world, that set them up for success. As an 18-year-old, rather than rote memorization for a test, we were learning how to manage a, an operation, basically. We're going to have a six-month or a year-long operation, including other staff. Uh, vehicles, equipment, dogs, health, all the intangible things that might come up along the way. You're broken down on the middle of nowhere, 500 miles from the nearest town. And the answer we'd get if you called for help, if your cell phone worked, if we had cell phones, was figure it out. What am I going to do? I'm 500 miles away, right? (laughs) So I do feel like it for my brothers and I, we all became rather self-sufficient people. Kind of, We were, I think, set up for it, but then ultimately just thrown into the deep end. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure as we get into kind of where some of the things you're doing now, that kind of an upbringing certainly has had an impact on your ability to branch out and do some of the uh, ventures you've got going. So, all right. So let's fast forward a little bit. You won your first Adidarod at 25. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Okay. So then you win the Adidarod. What starts to shift? I mean, obviously, I know we've talked before. The Adidarod is, I guess you'd say, kind of a regional my wife started following you 10 plus years ago and pulled me in and I got hooked. We were in Southern California at the time, but I think by guessing there are fans throughout the world that are kind of just drawn to the dogs and the sport. But I would say for the most part, it's kind of a regional sport. So how does that change? I mean, obviously you're gaining some notoriety. How does that affect you in terms of now maybe building your team out sponsor-wise and those kinds of things? Sure. In fairness, I would say some of the most challenging building was before we won the Iditarod. I struck out on my own, started my own kennel when I was, I think, 21 or thereabout. It was fall of 2008, whatever that would have been. And you started building my own kennel and very much a shoestring budget. It is kind of trying to figure out how to make ends meet from day to day. And some of that required gaining sponsorship. And I made my best sponsorship connection and kind of on some ways a financial mentor prior to even starting my own kennel. 
And that was kind of what started to allow us to even think about starting our own operation. I feel like for me personally, that was some of the largest leaps of faith and really the era in which it was the process of, I'm going to bite off more than I can chew, and then we're going to figure out how to get it done. And in that process, I began to learn how much more we can do. I had done that in a physical realm, running the Iditarod. I ran my first pro races at 16, and they were some of the toughest races in Alaska, though shorter in distance. They're still 300-mile races primarily and very challenging. I had done it in the wrestling world. I became the first Alaskan to win a national title in Olympic-style wrestling and had some good success in the wrestling world. So you learn about pushing yourself in that physical realm. Like, oh man, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more. But then on the business side of it, on the responsibility side of it, that's kind of the point in my life when it was shifting, saying, all right, we're going to actually do this. We're going to be responsible, not just for six months for these dogs, but through the entirety of their life. We're now going to have our own staff and employees, and you've got to come up with payroll. And so that was the biggest shift for me. Once I won the Iditarod, that was almost more the end than the beginning. From that point, you have a foundation from which to build. Building that foundation was really the big first step for me. And learning, I think a crucial point for me was learning. I'm very analytical in most things that I do. And so when I started the kennel, I wanted to see like, what's going to keep us from winning the Iditarod? I'm a student of the sport, have been my entire life. Where are the places that other mushers have gotten hung up. Why has this person run 20 Iditarods? Very successfully, very competitively, but never pulled off, gotten the victory there. What has held them back? And finances is part of the game. You're going to see almost every musher in here, every single one of them that's self-financed, and you have to take responsibility for that or else it will be your Achilles heel. And we see that in many athletes where they're great dog mushers, but they're not great business managers. They are always handicapping themselves on the finance side. Okay. This is a really interesting point. So if you can explain, I've interviewed a number of people who've started new careers, left companies, prestigious jobs. And I love to hear people describe like what you said. It's basically a leap of faith. I mean, you're just, you're going for it. And that part of the journey is, I imagine, not to put words in your mouth, but is exciting in some ways. I think that's an element. I think you described it. That's a part of the victory. All that risk, that's a part of the payoff at the end. I totally get it. So maybe explain then, how does the sponsorship or the financing or wherever it's coming from, how does that make the difference? I mean, I mean, I know you got to feed dogs and all the obvious stuff, but that would be interesting to find out. In many ways, and all of this stuff is in shade. It's not like an electrical circuit that is either turned on or it's turned off, right? We're playing with so many little percentages. Imagine like you're In the NFL, you're going to see these very high-tech breakdowns of this quarterback compared to that quarterback. This one's a little bit better in the passing game. This one's a little bit better at the play calling. And it's those little tenths of a percentage in these different areas. I want to elevate all of those levels to the highest we can. And another kind of introspective side of it is we should always be assessing and say, where am I the worst relative to my competition? And or where do I feel that I have the most room to improve? What realm of this sport is under-maximized? And that's where we should focus our attentions, on our weakest point. So often as humans, we rely on our strongest suits, which means we always turn to our strongest suits, which means we continue to improve in a realm in which we only have 1% or 2% of possible improvement left. And we avoid the areas that we're worst at, the areas that we have 50% improvement, right? And so we spend all our time and energies focusing on the areas that aren't actually going to benefit us in the greater scheme of things, trying to expand yourself to the biggest possible being, I guess, for lack of a more nuanced name there. So 
the financing affects us in many different ways. Everything from the number of dogs that we're effectively able to maintain and train, right? If you have a larger group to draw from, you're presumably going to be able to develop better individual athletes. Now, all of that, it's not just having more dogs. It's not like, oh, I can buy another dog or I can breed another litter of dogs. I would say for about every 10 dogs, let's say, let's just break it into that number, you're going to need another human to help develop those dogs, train those dogs to actually maximize them. Simply having them is not enough. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into maximizing each of those dogs, giving them the individual attention they need, you know, the actual physical development, the mental stimulation. So the infrastructure has to grow in correlation to the number of dogs. So to have a kennel that's capable of maximizing 30 dogs, when I say maximizing, I mean giving them the perfect, as best as we know how to, perfect life setup, right? Everywhere from puppy to retirement, literally everything in between. So we maintain about one person per 10 to 12 dogs. That's an ideal number. It's enough to keep the person busy, but it's not so much that anybody's going under attended. So that's one realm where the finances help. Another simple example would be weather. Weather affects us a lot throughout the training year, especially in the last 10 years. We've seen years where it's not much snow until late in the winter, and we need to be able to travel and find the best possible training conditions. And you'll see if money is something that you're always running up against, yes, I can stay home and scratch out 20 miles of trail and a circle out here on ice and run the dogs hooked up in front of a four-wheeler with chains on it, and we can safely do it, but it's not optimal training versus driving 500 miles, being away for the next two weeks and being on some deep snow trails, going in mountains where it's fun for the dogs because it's new and exciting and it's different. And then there's literally everything in between. Every little tidbit of equipment, look at any sport. You can buy a bicycle that's pretty dang good for a couple hundred bucks. You can buy a really good bicycle for four grand. Or you can go to 20,000 and save a few grams here and there, right? So it's the 80-20 rule, only taken to the nth degree, where to get that last half a percent of benefit, the cost goes up exponentially. So it's every little area like that, quality of nutrition, quality of supplements, quality of staff, working with dogs, a million little areas. So that's fascinating. The most of us who aren't in, in the mushing world would even think about those things. But that also shows out the dedication and commitment. I mean, that's the thing we've always appreciated about you since we've known you and been blessed to be able to sponsor your races here and there. Just the way you take care of the dogs, the relationship, you talk a lot about that. And I think that's just... It's very much a lifestyle. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I don't think I've seen anything online of you without being surrounded by the dogs. So let me ask you this then. You come from a family, like you said, of mushers. Your dad had some success before you, I think. Am I right on that? He won. He won his first I did run in 2004. Yep. Okay. And then you won, I should know this. 2012. 2012. Okay. And then you end up having this success. How does that change? I mean, because I'm, I'm guessing there's always pluses and minuses, particularly when it comes to finances and all of a sudden the new shiny toy and people want to be connected to a successful person. That's just kind of how it is, I think. How did that start to shift things and potentially launch you into another level, if that's a fair way to put it? And maybe what were some of the challenges at the same time? Well, there's a number of challenges. And as you mentioned before, mushing is a regional sport to an extent. I would say the region is the northern parts of the northern countries, whether it be Norway, Sweden, Finland, a little bit in Russia, obviously Alaska, Canada, and the northern states in the U.S. and the continental U.S. But similarly, as it is a regional in kind of region, <laughs> it's also seasonal, right? Mushing is really only relevant for a few weeks around Iditarod time. So 
as much as you might think that you're a big shot or a star, or like, oh, I won the Iditarod, whoop de frickin' do, you mushed a long ways with some sled dogs. It's not that big of a deal, and it's really only relevant for a short period of time in the year. It's not, there are other sports that have much, much longer seasons as far as the competition goes. Obviously, we're training and developing year-round, but the race itself, it's a very short racing season. It's not really an encumbrance. I haven't felt like it was, and then I think part of my racing mentality is you're always trying to be streamlined. You're always trying to put your energy where it's going to have the maximum impact and effect, and you're also trying to shed anything that is causing resistance or slowing you down. And I feel like a lot of the social side of it is resistance. I mean, right now I'm sitting in the middle of 100 acres in kind of remote area. <laughs> I can still drive here. So that's good. It's easy to get to that way, but we're off grid. There's no power. It's generators and solar. And my closest neighbor's half a mile that way. And lots around me are 100 to 500 acres. And then it's state land and park land. So my point to all this is it's not like we're constantly surrounded by people. We're insulated. We do a very individual sport. And so it's very easy to ignore and not obsess with the whole interpersonal side of it and the, oh, you're a big star now. Not really. The only time that it really matters is when I come out of my hermit lair and go to the big city of Anchorage to start the Iditarod. And then that lasts all of a day. And now we're out in the middle of nowhere on the trail. So it's not that big of a deal. But how we have been able to utilize that in the business side of things is I do a fair bit of public speaking, a lot of corporate type events. That's one of the legs of the stool that supports this whole thing financially. And maybe we should start by saying racing is a horrible financial decision. Racing the Iditarod is a really expensive hobby that would put golf and boats to shame, right? And probably even airplanes. So when we look at this thing, it is a lifestyle. I do this because I like being around the dogs. I like doing it with a sense of purpose. But racing is a liability. And so we always have to find ways to support that financially. And that for us is tourism. It's public speaking. Sponsorship is indispensable, but none of these things carry it on their own or even come remotely close to it. So you asked earlier about kind of the shifts post-winning. One of the biggest shifts is going from a very hungry 25-year-old that is asking the question, can we win the Iditarod? You're driven, you're driven, you're driven. You're trying to prove to yourself or see if it's possible to accomplish this goal. And on that path or on that journey, we could not turn down anything that had a positive return on it, right? So your time gets drawn so thin. And I'm talking, you wake up in almost a bit of a panic, feeling like you're already behind on the day and it's six o'clock in the morning and you go to bed at one in the morning when you are too mind dead to be working effectively. When you start making mistakes, you're like, all right, I got to sleep for a few hours. And you have that mentality. And at some point you have to find stability and start looking, all right, how am I going to do this for the next 40 years? Yeah, I can go for four or five years, super intense, rise to the top. But now we got to figure out how to reassess, adjust, stabilize. Pricing was a big part of it. Assessing your own self-worth. I don't want to say self-worth, but your value. We started pushing up prices. I went from doing, if somebody paid me 500 bucks to do an event, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Now it's like, here's the price point. And we've been able to magnify our effect and properly monetize that. And that's been a big shift. And then finally, a big one is learning how to manage people. It went from being a one person show to now I have, I think we had 30 W2s last year. So we're on a growth trajectory. And then my position has changed and morphed to where it's more managing people and training people how to do this to create a bigger operation than actually doing it myself. Yes, I still train all the racing dogs. I do all that. But 
I used to run the entire kennel by myself. I might have had one person helping me on almost a volunteer basis. And now you're creating systems that can repeat success time and time again. And that's been a really fun kind of shift for me to go through as well. Yeah, no, it's exciting to hear because there's an evolution and you have to adapt. I think I read a quote. Didn't you once say that if you want to make a million running racing sled dogs <laughs> that you need to start as a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's been stolen from somewhere else, but it rings true in this world, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess you maybe already answered this question that most of the the corporate sponsors you have are more regional. I think that's probably speaks to the fact like you said, I mean, for business that's looking for, if they're in it for exposure alone, I mean, like you said, a couple of weeks of labels and and patches and banners and stuff isn't going to go very far potentially in the minds of some. I would just interject on that. I think what you just explained is very much the perception within the mushing world of sponsorship. And that's something we wanted to take a look at and kind of reassess. So I've had one sponsor that's been with me for many, many years, and they're based out of Nina, Wisconsin, JJ Keller and Associates. And they're in the trucking compliance realm has nothing to do with mushing. I had another one that was kind of in health realm out of Utah, and they were with me for a couple of years as well. And part of, I think one of the things we have to focus on is what is a sponsorship? If you look at it as a donation, and some of them are, don't get me wrong, there are donations. People want to see you doing this stuff. They want to follow the adventure. They want to be part of it. And that's great. And then we want to make sure that those people feel supported and embraced and like they're part of the team because they're an invaluable part of the whole operation. But when we speak specifically about the corporate sponsorship, two things we need to look at. One, as a musher, we can't view it as a donation. It needs to be a smart business decision. You might find a board member or even an owner-operated company that the owner likes you, but at some point, they're going to get tired of it if there's not a financial return. At some point, they're not going to be able to convince the remainder of the board that sending money off to a dog musher in Alaska is a good financial choice for their shareholders, right? So you have to structure that, and that's something we've really focused on is trying to return value, and I want this to be a positive investment for the advertising portion of the companies that we work with, and I think that's what's allowed us to have our longer-term relationships And then we also have to recognize the fact, just like you said, if we put patches on the sled, who's going to see it? A couple ptarmigan, a moose maybe along the way. (laughs) It's not like we're doing NASCAR doing, I don't know how many laps around the same course here in front of a huge audience. There aren't bleachers in this event. So we have had to learn how to export what's unique about mushing. And again, this goes back to the monetization side of it is understanding what is it that's unique about mushing and how do we take that out of Alaska to where it's valuable? whether that's a corporation in Wisconsin that has overcomes challenging transportation problems. All right, let's look at the base of mushing, where it's about freight hauling, it's about subsistence in Alaska. And let's overlay that over what they're doing. I travel to do a lot of public speaking stuff. It Almost none of it happens in Alaska. It's all out of the state or out of the country. And so that has been a process. That I feel like we have probably the best sponsors in the sport. And I have to think that at least in part of the, that is in part due to the fact that we're constantly focused on returning value. If we can produce value, that's where the money will then follow. But we have to focus on producing value. And we have to understand that our product is not a very rare commodity up here. We have to figure out how to export that into tourism, traveling for public speaking, and coming up with some very creative kind of advertising campaign support for companies. Well, I tell you what, on that note, and that's why I, we've been fortunate for the time that my work and my company, Capital Investment Advisors, has been involved with you guys. It's I think the draw 
to at least my company is what you kind of talked about earlier is this adapting, this changing. The very first thing you said, not just being stagnant. And that's been particularly critical for us over the last few years as things have changed economically and geopolitically. And to sit and pretend like we're operating in the same old business cycle is death. To me, it is. And that's maybe what you're saying is there's been a connection to a philosophy that is can be applied to a number of different things, whether it's mushing or to what we do. And so I think that's smart. So here's, I guess, a question. I'll know it again if I'm overstepping my bounds here. Please tell me. But I do know, and I can't remember the name of the show, and if I was really on it, I would have looked it up. But I know you were doing some TV stuff for a while. It was kind of a Survivor-like team. Survival Alaska, yeah. That was a uh, National Geographic show. And how did that come about? Funny story on that one. That was after I won my first Iditarod in 2012. There was a whole string of interviews and whatnot. And again, mushing has a short season, which means everything is condensed, compressed. So as soon as the race is over, it's interview, interview, this thing, that thing. And and this one, it's like, hey, National Geographic wants to do a video interview, something. I'm like, all right, sounds good. Schedule it. Went down there. I mean, I met him at a scenic spot, probably about 10 miles from where I live. And I go through this whole interview with this guy. And it was a very odd interview. At the end, I'm like, I'm sorry, what is this for exactly? Like, we're doing a reality show and we're casting. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so I had no idea. We <laughs> went through the whole process. I'm like, okay. And he's like, would you be available for, I think he said the month of June or something or the month of July. And I was like, possibly. Do you, I mean, do you have a budget? I can't just disappear. I've got responsibilities and I can't like just vanish for a month and not be paid. He's like, oh yeah, we got a budget. They pay. I'm like, all right, sure. Possibly, you know, let me know. I heard nothing until like end of August and ended up being about 50 days in the wilderness, about two and a half months kind of more or less subsisting and traveling and moving. Actually, I did that with my brother, came on the show very last minute as they had another cast member that fell out. So he just got done commercial fishing and spent, I think, two days at home with his wife after being gone for about 100 days and joined me for another 50 days out in the woods. So that was another way that I guess we export what's unique about mushing or the lifestyle and the people was through that television medium. And that's the only major one I've done. There's been some other shows that we worked with where there's other people that have their show and they'll come. And when they do an episode in Alaska, they invariably want to incorporate sled dogs and mushing. And we've worked with a number of different shows like that. That's interesting. Yeah. I just, it's funny how these different opportunities come up. I remember seeing you on TV. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's all over the place. <laughs> we stay busy. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So now here you are. I mean, you're in your mid 30s and you won five Iditarods. Okay. So, one of two people that have won five Iditarods and you're taking some time off, which I think speaks to what you said earlier. And that is there's this balance. And I'm not putting myself in your brain, but you're still a really young guy with a lot of time. So what are you doing now? I know you shared some things with me, heli mushing. We've been to your kennel when it was in Anchorage, probably, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, maybe. But yeah, maybe share kind of how this is building out, because I think that's really fascinating. So tourism is far and away the, the primary source of funding for our mushing operation. And it's also what allows me to not just share the sport with myself and a very small group, but I also have a larger group of, I guess, employees, for lack of a better term there. I mean, we pay them and we house them and everything else. But there's a lot of other people that want to mush. So this year I had a number of mushers in smaller races and we're trying to train and develop kind of that next wave or next generation of mushers. 
And we can do that through tourism where they can actually make a living being a dog musher, which is pretty unique. That was not something you could do 15, 20, well, certainly 30 years ago, that wasn't really an option, right? You had to have your job, you did construction, you did commercial fishing, you maybe were a charter pilot, and then you had dogs as a hobby on the side. And we've been able to kind of morph that to where you can actually make a living as a dog musher, which is pretty awesome. You get to spend all your time hanging out with dogs and doing what you love and actually be able to feed yourself in the process. So the tourism side, how I view it is a kind of three unique tour venues, one of which is here at our main kennel in Talkeetna. We've got 100 acres here. and It's kind of like I'm trying to build the ultimate sled dog playground. It's coming along very well. I've been here for about five years now, I think. And so guests come here, they can mush their own team of dogs, all the trails are on the property, and they're designed for novice mushers to kind of get that first glimpse into mushing and actually feel what it's like to stand on the runners, get pulled by a team of dogs. And of course, they're out there with guides, but they are in fact controlling their own team. And then they're going to tour the whole facility. This is where the dogs live, play and train every single day of their life. So everything from the puppies, they're going to learn about what the puppies are doing, the development and little tiny furry potato, all the way to the entire building full of retired dogs. You go in there and there's about a dozen dogs on the couch and everywhere else. And so there's nowhere for a human to sit down, but that's how we all like it. And and that's in the winter months here in Talkeetna. And in the summertime is Alaska's big tourism season. And we have two different operations there. One where guests can actually take a helicopter up onto a glacier where, of course, there is snow all summer long. And about 50 of the dogs live on this glacier all summer long, along with the rotating staff up there of about five to six people. And you can take a helicopter, which that alone is awesome. It's an incredible experience. We see goats, bears, moose all the time flying up there. You're flying right at the toe of this beautiful glacier, land up on the ice field, and then hitch up a team of dogs and get toured around on a dog team on snow in July in Alaska. And I'll tell you, that's the scenery up there. I've been in Alaska my whole life. I've done the reality shows. We did 34, 35 episodes in the most beautiful place in Alaska. And this is about tops them all. It's insane. You got the peaks right there, the glacier, the snow. It's just like all of Alaska laid out in front of you. It's an amazing experience. So there's kind of one option. That's newer to me. I've only been doing that for about two years now. And then here in Talkeetna, in the summer months, we developed some I don't even know how to describe it. It's more like a four-wheeled bicycle, basically, that you stand up. You almost drive it like a chariot with a team of dogs pulling it again on our custom trails here in Talkeetna. And that's, I was trying to develop the most similar experience I could to mushing in the snow, but obviously on the trails in the summertime where we go through our birch forest here in Talkeetna. And I think we came pretty close. The feel is very similar. The experience is very, very similar to what it's like in the wintertime. So We have kind of those three unique aspects that we're working on the tourism side of it. And again, it keeps the dogs active and keeps them busy, keeps them mentally stimulated. Instead of sitting kind of lazily all summer when it's too warm to do extreme training, we want them to be mentally active. So there's nothing better than getting hitched up maybe three or four times in a day and then doing just a short run where they can not worry about getting too warm out there. But it keeps them busy and active all day long. And even though they didn't run a long distance by sled dog standards, By the end of the day, they're tuckered out. This was a busy day. Whether or not they were getting hitched up each time, the whole yard gets excited. Whenever you go out there with a harness, the entire dog yard just explodes because they're all doing the pick me, pick me. So it's really good mental stimulation. And it warrants having maintaining that 10 to 1 dogs to human ratio where we have plenty of people to keep those dogs busy and active. And then, of course, once the workday is done, we're taking them out for walks or loose runs and just enjoying life. I tell you what, as you know, we have a husky Malamute mix, and then we just got a little Malamute puppy that somebody left at a shelter here where we are now, and he's about a year old, but I mean, it's work... (laughs) 
just having those two. Yeah. So I'm thinking about all these dogs you have. And I mean, yeah, and it's like that. There's never a time when you grab that harness to hook them up and take them out that they don't want to go. No, you know no. I mean? It's just like, okay. So anyhow, is there like a season for this, which is, I imagine, what, typically the spring to fall season? Because I mean, at some point, I guess you go from tourism mode with the dogs into training mode, assuming you're going to be racing or somebody's going to be racing them. So May to September is the busy summer season in Alaska, right? It's a great time. Anywhere in there is a great time to visit Alaska. That's definitely our busiest, not just for us, but for any tourism-based company in Alaska. I think we see about somewhere in the 85% of the Alaska's guests come between May and September. And the winter is much slower, but in a correlating manner, there's a lot fewer activities to do. Because winter tourism in Alaska isn't a big industry, you don't see tons and tons and tons of operations. So just by virtue of being open, what a little tourism there is, we do pretty well in the wintertime, at least enough to stay busy. But anymore, winter tourism is not our primary focus. We do enough to help cover the bills where we can. But for everybody we have here working here, me, the whole lot, we're more focused on racing in the winter months. And so that really starts September, things start getting serious in training, and it's going to run through March when the Iditarod actually takes place. On the cusp of hitting our summer season right now, I'm in the middle of getting everything ready to go up to the glacier. We open that location first. So by May 1st, we'll be doing tours up there. At the end of next week, we're starting to fly everything up there. Sounds awesome. That's just one thing added to our list of things we need to do now. So (laughs) thanks for that. Add it to the bucket list. Yeah, right. No, that sounds awesome. So I guess I was going to say, I mean, going forward, can I ask where you see the business and tourism aspect? I mean, is there like a big picture goal you're comfortable talking about right now as to where you sort of see things headed? Yeah, kind of. We're always trying to kind of plot that out. And that's one of the things I think that I, whether by whatever means, I don't know, I ended up being pretty good at understanding what do I need to be right now? Where does my focus need to be? And learning how to, well, at some point I became consciously aware of like, we're narrowed down to the next three seconds. This goes back to even the wrestling time where you're super intense. Other times you've got to open up your mind a little bit and look 10, 20 years in the future, take that step back. And kind of that flexibility, there are times that I need to be a very in tune, in touch dog person. And the business side of me is completely somewhere else. Other times like, all right, now I have to sit down at the computer and be a business person. So whatever made me successful in racing, that's not really relevant here. In fact, it may be a detriment in this realm, maybe isn't, but you have to be consciously aware of what's your mindset in each of those places and shifting between tasks and having the right mindset and understanding for this organization, the leadership we need here is X. That's what we got to focus on. That's what I need to improve on. So I almost see like trying to develop multiple lanes of who you are and being able to switch between those to be able to be effective in the situation. Some places you rely on your patience. Some places you rely more on, I am better at being miserable than almost anybody on this planet. I can be out there at 50 below zero and it's not going to bother me. I'm going to do what needs to be done. I'm going to take care of the dogs and everything's going to be done to the very best of our ability. And the fact that it's 50 below zero and blowing 50 miles an hour is not an excuse to do it anything less than perfect, right? That's our job. That's who I am right now. And so there are phases where you have to shift and say, all right, what are we doing going forward. And I think that's kind of where I'm at right now is I would love racing. I didn't really want to take a year off. It's not like I needed a break from mushing. That's not at all the case. But it was like, all right, I've got a daughter who's about to turn 13. Her mom and I are together. So it's when she's here, it takes a lot of time. And I want to be able to be more involved with what's going on, not necessarily spend more time. She's with me about half the time as it is. It's not really that we want more time. It's just more valuable time. Instead of like, hey, I'm busy doing this, that or the other thing. 
let's have the time to go do stuff. Let's go spend a weekend here or go visit grandma and grandpa down on the Kenai Peninsula, having that option. And so that's really why I'm not racing this year is I want to be able to have more valuable time with her, not just more time, but more valuable time. And this is a sport that you can do until you're 60 seems to be a hard cutoff. We've seen a lot of really competitive mushers do very well in the race. Actually, I became the youngest person to win it in 2012. The following year in 2013, my dad became the oldest person to ever win the race. So that was kind of neat. Bookended it in back-to-back years. A few years later, my dad won the Iditarod for a third time and broke his own record of becoming even the olderest person. So he won the race at 57. I started very young in the sport. I think my dad was about my age now when he really started racing seriously. So it's like, if we're going to have that longevity, you're going to need to break it up. We're going to have to focus on different things at times. And I want to experience more than just one thing. And in some ways, it's almost a cop out to stay in mushing. It's like you got good at something when you're 25 and you never steered away from it. I would expect myself to be good at mushing. That's what I did. But are we going to continue to challenge ourselves? Are you going to go to something that you don't know if you're good at? So that's kind of part of the emphasis on the business thing. You know what? It's a challenge. The joy is lost when you know you can do it, right? So yeah, if I race the Iditarod every single year and keep doing it, I'll win some more, maybe a lot more, I don't know. But it's not really a question mark like it was the first time when I didn't know if I could win the Iditarod. I didn't know if that was something that you had to be some superhuman freak to be able to do it. And that's what we were striving for. So now the business side of it, I really enjoy that side. We're continuing to grow the tourism and the mushing portions, but we're also diversifying outside of mushing, but still within tourism. And then further outside of tourism. I don't like being fully dependent on one economic lane where there's volatility. So let's diversify it out a little bit. Let's open up our comfort zones. That doesn't mean recklessly fall into something else, but it means force yourself to become educated, learn about another lane, get the input and advice, and again, continue to grow and have a little more of a diverse platform to work from. If for no other reason, then it's something to learn. It's continued growth, right? Yeah. And that's what I really appreciate about your message and just the way you, you operate, because it's like you said, I'm just being redundant, but you know, it's, I think we're all attracted to things we're good at, but it's actually fun. And as you said, it keeps things fresh when you can develop other talents and really, I mean, I worked at a bank for years and quit and ran a business, had a partner. And then a year later, he and I went separate ways. And one of the things I learned in that first year was something I didn't know about myself. And that is I had actually really good business sense. Just It was kind of just a natural thing. And so it's been a fun part of the work because in addition, you know, we manage money for people and all that. But there's also, like you said, you've got employees, you've got business decisions that are as whole separate. And so it's a challenge, but it's exciting. So just a couple other things really quick. Maybe one other thing is you went over to Europe to the Finnmark Schlopa. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Was the exposure in Europe, because I know my wife and son just popped off and went there at the last minute, like you got to go to Norway and see them. Did that kind of shift anything for you? I'm just kind of wondering, because I know you're probably more well-known than you want to admit, but just curious how that impacted the career and the business. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. And again, there's so many different realms, but even within the mushing world, you can keep doing the same thing over and over and see nominal growth. And that's part of it is, yeah, I had a lot of interest and reasons to go to Norway and race over there. And I was really excited to do that. But it's also, it's an entirely different mushing ecosystem. The small things that are just done differently because it's habit, right? There's a lot of things we do that we never question. It's just, this is how you do it, right? And it's not really brought to the forefront until you see it done differently. And when you travel overseas, you see the same sport with a different history, practice in a slightly different way. And a lot of those small base things were slightly different, which 
in many cases, it wasn't better. It was just different. But what it really did is causes you to think about, so we do it differently in the US. Why do we do it the way that we do? I love assessing things that we take for granted or just assumptions within an industry, within a sport, within a practice, and just reassess it. And that's something we're constantly trying to do and be careful not to fall into that, oh, we do it this way because that's how they did it for the last 30 years. Well, look at everything that's changed in the last 30 years. <laughs> we constantly have to keep updating these processes. And in many of the cases, we'll assess them and find, yep, it's still the best way to do it. But what that also allows us to do is move forward with 100% confidence that we took the time to think about this and we're doing it the right way, which really allows you to invest yourself more into doing it to the maximum. So it was educational from that sense. And part of what I'm trying to do as a musher is become the best possible musher I can be in that section of my life, right? And I feel like racing is one aspect of mushing. It's not the only aspect of mushing. You know, there's sprint racing where your longest race is 20 miles. There's ultra long distance racing like the Iditarod where we're going a thousand miles. There's expeditions where it's more about going a long ways, but unsupported. And all of these things can teach you something about being a dogman, which is really at the core of it, what I do. I work with dogs, right? I have to understand them implicitly. I want to understand every aspect of their psyche, of their emotions, of course, their physical side. We take that for granted. But the rest of it's what really elevates you to the next level. When you can diagnose what's going to happen in three days with this dog psychologically and address it at this phase and prevent that from ever happening, that's when you are a great coach. Not when you can see a problem and fix a problem, but when you can sense a problem is going to happen and fix it before there ever was a problem, then your dog, your teammate, your employee, your the, somebody who's following you, if you will, their experience is that there's never a problem when you're leading. Not this is a leader that can fix problems, which is a good trait, right? You need to be able to fix problems if you're a leader. But the next level beyond that is preempting the whole situation and almost having that crystal ball where you can see what's going to come in two or three or four days on this race. And I feel like that's one of the areas that you have to just put yourself in that situation. My style of training puts me out in the wilderness with dogs for very long periods of time, more than I think any other racer in the Iditarod. And I think that's what makes us a good Iditarod racer is the connection is so close. And we've been in similar situations, not the connection like, oh, we're sitting on the couch, which I do that as well. But I'm saying the type of connection, like in a similar situation, in blizzards where we're all a little bit concerned or worried, the elements, Alaska, it's, it's a big, scary world out there. And we've come up with methods to work through those problems together. So going to Norway was just an extension of that, even traveling halfway around the world with 16 sled dogs. It puts you in some situations you've never been in before. And you learn more about each other when you go through those challenges with somebody or with a dog. And it's a very enlightening experience. And I would hope to do it again here sometime in the future. No definite date. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. Listen, I know you love your dogs. I like the way you, I'm listening to you and it is a relationship. That's what Darcy always says about you don't train huskies necessarily. What you do is you build a relationship with them. And kind of like kids in that hooked, regard. Just hooked. Yeah, they're just beings. And they, like you said, they have feelings. I know they love to be out. I mean, we have this one, our storm, we had tons of snow this year and he'll be sitting out there and sleeping and just getting covered in snow. And I'll be like, Stormy, you want to come in? You want to come in? He just looks at me like, will you quit bothering me? <laughs> I'm finally not roasting. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> they just enjoy it. But listen, I appreciate the relationship we've had, the friendship. It's nice to be able to just call and have you on like this and really appreciate the example you set as a business owner and particularly as a person that works with dogs and understands them. We really appreciate that about you. So 
Thanks so much for your time. I guess last thing is, if anybody wants to go and do heli mushing, where do we steer them? Well, our company is just AK, as in Alaska, but AK Sled Dog Tours, or just sleddogtours.com, or just look up anything Dallas CV, and you'll probably end up at our page. But yeah, we have options pretty much any season up here, summer, winter, heli mushing, different experiences with different price points and whatnot. But again, these activities, what I've focused on is how do we... A, I want to make activities that I would want to do. That's the problem when you travel to places that have tourism industries is a lot of it is bulk tourism. That's about what can we mass produce or what looks good on a flyer and we can get the whole family through there. But we've really tried to focus on building activities that are kind of small batch activities. Pretty much all our tours have a 12 person max capacity and making tours that I would want to do. And I've lived up here my whole life. So if it's something that I'm like, that was a lot of fun, (laughs) then I know it's going to be a hit with somebody who's coming up here and wants to experience Alaska, right? So uh, yeah, sleddogtours.com, probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. Or you can follow on social. We do a fair bit on uh, Facebook primarily. It's just Dallas CV, I guess. And that's a great way to follow along with the training that's happening with the dogs, the activities they're doing, kind of meet some of the pups there. And it's always fun for me sharing some stuff on there where we get to follow these dogs from being born. Actually, I just was cleaning up in my house here. and I found this picture of a dog named Tux. And he's named Tux because when he's a little puppy, he'd jump up on the pan. And he looked like he was wearing a little tuxedo. He's like almost all black dog with a white chest on him. It's super cute. But he was born in the wintertime. And winter puppies are always the cutest because they're extra fluffy and furry and everything. And I was seeing that. And Tux is, I think he's 12 or 13 now. And he's sacked out down on the couch. And it's just been like, an interesting experience. And uh, through that whole time, we were sharing stuff on social media and people following him. And I I had a fan that emailed me just the other day and was talking about Tux. And it's like, it is so cool to watch that whole life progress. And then the entire phase of it from being born as a puppy to retired couch dog to Beetle, which is one of my most beloved dogs ever who passed away just recently as ashes are on the desk. So it's like that whole life phase. And I feel so fortunate to get to share that with them, experience it with them. And then it's, I don't want to say it starts over because you can never replicate an individual, but the next generation. I had dogs on my Iditarod team. This was the great, great, great grandson of a dog that I raced in the Iditarod when I was 18, right? And now he's racing with me on the Iditarod. So you have that multi-generational information and I know what his parents struggled with or what his grandparents really excelled at. And that helps me help them navigate life and become this sled dog that's able to do incredible things and gets the most joy out of life possible. So anyway, sorry to go off on that tangent, but uh, the social media is a way for us to kind of help share that. And it's a beautiful, fun part of what we get to do every day. I'll tell you what, Dallas, for a guy 36 years old, you've got a lot of wisdom. And I know you're a humble guy, but I'm just telling you that as, I mean, really, it's a blessing to have a lot of these, what you've figured out these things you figured out at your age because i know i personally wasn't there so well i appreciate you saying so i think we got a lot more to learn though all right well thank you i appreciate the call it's good to reconnect yeah thanks for joining me on upthinking finance emerson fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through lpl financial member finra sipc Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.